I think you share with me the uh, excitement about the topic that we're covering. Uh, Dr. Lloyd has agreed to make public his uh, prized possession and lectures, his PowerPoint, and uh, it did not get posted this week, but it was in the oven, and today it will bloom, and it, it will be available uh, for you to, uh, to review or to view for the first time if you weren't here last week. So once again, we welcome Dr. Lloyd back, and as we do that, let's, let's open in prayer. Father God, we, we pause to offer our prayer, our prayer of praise and thanks for yet another day that you've given us. It's right to give you our thanks and prayer because you built the heavens and the earth and all that is within them. And like you, you call us to be builders as well. You call us to build our lives and to restore broken places. You call us to build our faith by studying your word and ponder its interpretations. You call us to build our community, to build bridges of understandings and systems of justice. You call us to build history by fulfilling the promises of the scripture as did your Son, Jesus, our Lord. You call us to preach the good news of God's love and liberations for all people. Father God, as we study today the rhetoric of your word, help us to understand the building that it takes in our heart. And bless that building with your Holy Spirit so that all can be made new, that all can be understood, and that our efforts aren't just human efforts, but your will. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. That's on. How's everyone doing today? Doing all right? Blue skies looking at me. All right, I talked last week about the mythos, the, the stories that people use to help them understand the world. And I looked at it more or less as the mythos is kind of what we hang our rhetoric and our logic on, that the stories help us to explain where we see ourselves in the world. This week I wanted to look more about how you end up having the mythos in the first place. Because, of course, it doesn't come from nowhere. It has to come from people sharing stories. The documentary hypothesis of the creation of the Old Testament, although it isn't controversial, I mean, it is controversial in the sense that they're arguing about various elements of it. It's not very controversial in the sense that most scholars agree that the Bible um, was put together, redacted over different time periods and that during those time periods each series of redactors put their own voice and influence in it. In other words, they're creating the mythos, they're creating the stories um, or bringing the stories out from, from the oral traditions into the written tradition. All right, so um, this is lacking the Deuteronomist 
version of this, but you can see here they've kind of colored. I have no idea how you arrive at these colors, some mathematician probably. But you can see that large sections of numbers in Leviticus are brought by the priestly redactors. They're the last redactors of the Old Testament, and they're the ones that kind of put everything together. You can probably see a thin blue line up here at the front. Wait, <laughs> I'll use my shadow to point. Uh, that would be the first story of Genesis, the one that we looked at last time, let us make man in our, our own image, was brought in by the priestly group, who the, were the last redactors. Some theorists think someone redacted beyond that, just kind of putting in a few editorial comments and pulling everything together, but basically they're the last major group that changed the Old Testament as we know it. Uh, the Deuteronomist version is not on here, but I'll give you a little idea what happened here. So we have the early oral and written sources, uh, and J are the traditions from uh, the south, from the Judah. So it's easy to remember J, Judah, but also Yahweh, if you know that it's pronounced Yahweh, Jehovah is supposed to, is a rough translation of Yahweh. So it's that school of thought. In, uh, in the J traditions, the, the southern traditions, God is very anthropomorphic. So this, this story of God being in the garden, walking in the cool of the day, making clothes for Adam and Eve, creating them as male and female. The stories that you see where God is very close and personal, this, the sections where God is talking directly to Abraham, those are all southern traditions. The northern tradition, God is uh, El, as we talked about last time. I mean, did I say southern? The northern traditions, God is El, um, which is a Canaan, Canaanite deity name. It's a general name for God. And then the, uh, the Hebrews fashioned it in their own ways by calling it Elohim, uh, uh, El Shaddai, etc. Okay, so the Deuteronomists come later. You can see here the Deuteronomists. Basically, if you go back to 922 BC, this is the beginning of uh, the two kingdoms. This is when um, David lived about a thousand. So this would be when the kingdom split into south and north. And it wasn't until the kingdom split into south and north that they began to, um, and things began to happen politically, that each of them began to, to specify their own traditions. So eventually, you can see here 722, they began to put them together. One of the major impetuses to put them together is that the northern kingdom falls. And when it falls, then the ones who survive, it falls to Assyria. I don't know if you know anything about Assyria, um, but if we went with the Jewish tradition of booing every time you mention somebody that's a bad guy in the Bible, these would be heavy boos. Because different cultures had different philosophies of conquest. The Babylonians, for instance, when they would conquer a country, they would just take the wealthy, the elite, and move them to Babylon and basically make them Babylonians. They would take people that had no power, put them in power, and then, therefore, they would only have power because the Babylonians put them in power. So basically, through both of those methods, they're basically trying to convert you to being Babylonians and part of the Babylonian Empire. 
And the Babylonians do that to the southern kingdom when they invade. But the earlier Assyrians had a different policy. Their policy was wipe everybody out <laughs> and move in our own people. They didn't have much use for putting any kind of puppet power in there. They wanted a true empire in that sense. So they were brutal. They, and they went in and they wiped out large numbers of the north. But the survivors in the north came south and they brought with them, of course, the E traditions. So for the first time, the, north, the south and the north are looking at both of these traditions. And they're both on the same stories. They have Abraham traditions, they have Exodus traditions. Both of them have different versions of these things, emphasizing, of course, the northern role or the southern role. And you can still see, I'll show you later, in the book of Judges, almost every judge is fighting an enemy that's known in the south. So you can see the Deuteronomists later who collect that together. They're southerners. So no accident that only judges we meet. Do you ever wonder why one judge would be like, he was a judge for three years and then he died. You know, it's like he's only there for a minute. Nothing's known <laughs> and you move on. Well, if you look at all the judges that get airtime, so to speak, they're southern judges. Ah, so it tells you who it is that collected the stories and what story they wanted to tell. Okay, so the Deuteronomists come in, and they're reformers. And what starts the Deuteronomist movement, or what pulls it together, is that the book of Deuteronomy is, quote, found in the temple. And when they find it, they bring it to King Josiah, and Josiah, as we would say, freaks out because he realizes that the country has completely lost its bearings. He looks at it, and if you read Deuteronomy, it's, it's very strict about you have to obey these laws or you'll be in trouble. And so he begins to destroy all the high places and try to bring his country back into center. But Deuteronomy means the second book of the law, so it's literally a retelling of Exodus from a Deuteronomist point of view. So they come on and they begin to change the text in ways that reflect the Deuteronomist view. And the Deuteronomist view won. If you ever have told yourself that the whole Old Testament is the story of how Israel disobeyed and God punished them and then God brought them back, that's the Deuteronomist view. The Deuteronomists live in the time when both kingdoms, one is under threat and the other has fallen. They're trying to explain how did we lose the promised land? The only thing they could add up, we brought it on ourselves. And that's the story that begins to be told. Then the priestly uh, group begins to refocus it, as we'll see today. They're the last redactors. Okay, you remember from last week, mythos, logos, rhetoric. Mythos are the stories that we use to explain the world. Logos are the rational principles. But notice that we, even when we think we're being rational, we do it within the parameters of the mythos. Like, I'm a rational American, I'm not a rational something else, you know, space person. I, I know I make rational arguments, but I make them within the stories and the, and the things that I believe. And rhetoric is using persuasion to get other people to do it, basically. But I want to look at rhetoric a different way. And it's based on um, a rhetorician named David Metzger. It's exciting to me that, that uh, one of the things that's happening in my field is that we're 
Uh, scholars are looking for rhetorical practices everywhere, and so recently there have been a lot of scholars studying the Old Testament, and David Mesker's one of them. I think he's one of the best. He says, the documentary hypothesis supports is itself a variation, a common definition of rhetoric. Rhetoric is the use of language to communicate and authorize a particular social political agenda. Now, I don't know you, but I don't like the word agenda. But I get what he's saying, is that as these redactors redact, they're going to bring in the stories that favor the view that they hold, and whatever other stories are out there, they're not going to bring those in. That makes sense. Because they, I don't like to say have an agenda, but they believe that, the, that this is the explanation for the time that they live in. Okay, so how does it fit with inspiration? Well, writers have a lot of motives, and I think the most significant is intent. For instance, when I was a kid, well, you can see that this didn't really take, but my father wanted me to cut my hair. <laughs> and I refused, because my father and I were at odds on everything. And I actually kind of enjoyed taking them off. But my grandfather took me aside one day, and he put his arm around me, and he goes, I'd love you if your hair was to the ground. He said, I don't care. He said, but if you can please your father by doing one small thing, why don't you? So what'd I do? I cut my hair. Interestingly enough, I cut my hair, and then when my father saw it, he said, it's not short enough. Lesson to fathers, that was not the right response. <laughs> because he didn't recognize my intent. I didn't want to cut my hair. I did it because I loved him. He didn't get that. Big mistake. I actually told him to get out of my room. Later on, he came and apologized, and he said, I don't care how long you wear your hair, and the story of me began. I wanted to say, I only wear it long because you, make, you made me cut it in the first place when I was a little kid. <laughs> All right. So I believe that the scriptural redactors were trying to stay true to the traditions, and I believe that they were being prayerful. I don't think it was just being rhetoricians in the normal sense of the word. I, I, I don't think agenda means something negative here. I think what it means is they believe this story. They believe this story needs to be told. And they believe that it is the truest way to look at God and God's relation to human beings. So they're updating it according to their own times. And I think, it, you know, a good story needs to be. All right, so what we're looking at is the power of rhetorical interpretation, this redaction process. So last week we looked at mythos shaping rhetoric and logical reasoning. This week we focus on rhetoric's power to shape mythos. So that same rhetorical triangle speaker-audience situation changes a bit. Where logos and mythos play a part, but the way that you get it all pulled together is through the skillful use of rhetoric. So rhetoric, in last week's sense, was more, more specific in the sense that how do arguments look shaped by mythos? This is more like how do we shape mythos through the way we present material? All right, so 
part two. But redactors are still human, and they live within the cultural mythos of their own time. And they also desire a fair representation for their own stories. It only makes sense that if I am, for instance, I literally am a Southerner. And sometimes when I hear people making fun of Southerners, it really ticks me off because I feel like they're not hearing our story. There's a different story. To say just because somebody talks like this don't mean they're not educated or thoughtful or smart. And it ticks me off. <laughs> when I hear people make those assumptions. My students, when I teach grammar, I speak like that. They're like, that hurts my ears. And I'm like, well, it hurts my ears to hear Ohioan sometimes. <laughs> That's not the point. Because they don't hear Ohioan, they live here. So everybody has their own stories, their own version, and they want it to be known. Okay, here's a for instance. Yeroboam, the king of the north, when the, when the kingdom split, establishes the center of worship at Beth El, the house of El. And Metzger says, because he did not want worshipers living on the border between the newly formed northern and southern kingdoms to take wealth of the northern kingdom called Israel or Samaria to the temple of Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom called Judah. So Metzger sees purely a political reason. I think there was more to his intent as we'll see. If we look at what's happening, you can see from these two maps, if you just focus on the color, the country is not as big as it started out. When they first uh, came in, this is the way they, they divided up the tribal land. Are we seeing? Over here on the left. So it went all the way up here, Asher and Naphtali, all the way down here, Judah, Ephraim, Gilead, Reuben, okay? This is what the intent was. By the time we get to the northern and southern kingdom, you can see it's smaller. Pretty much all of Ashtar is gone. Asher is gone. Most of Gilead is gone. Most of Reuben is gone. All right? So this is going to significantly change you can see Simeon is totally gone. So all that's really left in the south is Judah. No wonder it's called the kingdom of Judah. So this has happened historically. And now they're trying to collect these stories. That's when the northerners... And, uh, all right, so another thing I wanted to look at is historically, if you look at the book of Judges... Over here, you can probably barely see that. Well, it actually shows up better here than on my screen. Um, this is like uh, the stories in block form of the different people. Now, what's interesting is Othniel, he's fighting Edom. That's a southern kingdom. Ehud is fighting a southern kingdom. The Midianites live down all the way down below, across from the Arabian Peninsula. They're not even on the map. Samson, Eli, and Samuel are all concerned with the Philistines. Another thing that's kind of hard to explain is that the Philistines, the Palestine state, we would call it now, never fell, was never a part of Israel. It's interesting now that the claim is that it's a part of Israel, 
but it never was historically. The Palestinians never fell. David had a pretty good relationship with them. Okay. So the political climate at the time, Solomon had, a, had favored his home tribe of Judah, and he focused most of his policies on the southern part of the country. So one of the reasons that they split was that they didn't feel like they were being represented. Wait, that sounds familiar. And in this case, the north split from the south. He even sells part of the northern kingdom to finance the building of the temple. Would that tick you off if you were in the northern kingdom? He felt like he had the right to because it was a unified kingdom until after he died. In the later Deuteronomist view, most of the northern kings were sinners and idolaters. That's the story that gets heard. If you look at them, his historical figures in other lights, in terms of politics or something like that, may not be the same story. And as you remember last time, 1 Kings says that Jeroboam, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. All right, so he tried to move the places of worship away from Jerusalem into the northern kingdom. But he, he did it really wisely. I'll show you in a second. Um, and he's using the, the name El because that is a name that's used in the northern kingdom. Uh, as I said, Eliam. It's also it became the first letter of the alphabet. Alphabet. So he has a little bit more of a noble intent because who told the story of Jeroboam? Southerners. Beth-El has a sacred tradition. It's the house of El, the house of God. Bait El. You can see down there in the Hebrew Bible. And it is the place where Jacob had his vision. Ah, remember he says, I put it on here so you have the reference. I'll show you in a second. Um, he said, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. Right? So this sacred spot is established by Jacob and his dream. And it's still called Bethel when we get to the New Testament. Uh, the worship centers, and also there's precedent to what he's doing. The worship centers had been in Shiloh and Gilgal mostly um, once they came into the country. Once the tribes moved into the country, they actually put it at Shiloh and Gilgal. And I'll show you in a second why they did that. One is accessible to the south, one to the north. Because already at this point, northerners and southerners were at odds. Yeah. Whatever his motives were, he obviously was way off base because he did golden calves. I'll get to that. Thank you. He didn't do that either. <laughs> Remember, this is a southern account. It, it was finally brought to Jerusalem by the king. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant was in several different places. Shallow Gilgal and Joshua, the Beth Shemanites, um, place. And then it was brought to Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a precedent out of it being in different places. Now watch what he does. He chose, chose locations accessible to both northern and southern kingdoms. So here's where the, the ark was located Shallow Gilgal. 
So one is accessible to the north, one accessible to the south. That's what they were trying to do is, is make, it, it's kind of like when, uh, uh, it reminds me of how they have conventions in my field. <laughs> they'll put a convention here and then mostly the people on the east coast will come to the one in DC and then they'll put it in San Francisco and then they put it in Chicago and what they're trying to do is make it easy. I'm at an international conference and they have it mostly in Europe but then they'll have it in the United States, Chicago or something like that. And I'm always disappointed because I'm like, I want to go over there. But a lot of the Europeans wanted to come over here. All right, so Jeroboam puts one in the far north in the city of Dan, but he also puts one in the far south, the city of Bethel. So if you look at it politically, it's not a bad move. And historians know that actually what he did was in the Ark of the Covenant, the, the seat of God is where? Where does God sit on the ark? Where's his presence? On the cherubim, right? And what he did was instead of the cherubim, he put a symbol of El for God to rest on. It wasn't you were supposed to worship the calf. That's the southern version. The point was instead of the cherubim, he put God's presence on a cow, which made more sense in the north. Now, it's debatable what he was doing there, but he wasn't necessarily doing what the Southern Version was saying he was trying to do, which was worship the cow. That wasn't what he was trying to do. Now, there are a lot of motives to that. But we might also note that Bethel is associated with the patriarchs, Jacob, who is named what? Israel, one who struggles with God. So it's not like he, what he did was completely unheard of or out of line. And particularly to the northerners, they wouldn't have seen it that way. And I just went ahead and referenced this so when you get the slideshow, you can see the passage where Jacob has the dream. All right, so the J&E traditions. The story of the golden calf in Exodus reflects the tensions between the northern and southern traditions. While the southern tradition placed God's presence on the cherubim, the Bethel group placed God's presence on the golden calf pedestal. But interestingly enough, the bull motif still showed up in the horns of the altar. So they had the idea of the bull, but they kind of moved it over to a different place in the tabernacle. All right. So right when the source documents are starting to come together, what happens? Israel falls to the Assyrians. So the Assyrian Empire came down and just swallowed everything that we would call Syria, uh, anything north of what we would call Israel today. And the, the beige, it looks beige up here, kind of peachy color, is the ninth century, but then you can see in, in 745 they came all the way down. So actually the Assyrians completely conquered the north. The south worked out a deal. The south worked out a, a you know, tribute. They became a part of the Assyrian Empire without being dissolved. Now, when you read the prophets, you can see this time period. You can watch in, uh, in Isaiah um, when he talks about don't tick off the Assyrians, make peace with the Assyrians. Didn't work. And uh, the north fell. All right, so the northern kingdom falls. Some of the survivors, like I said, wish to come down. 
So the Judeans knew the stories preserved in, in J or Yah. The Israelites knew the story preserved in E. Since both of these, it's interesting how both of these words become words for Jews. Yes, Israelites, and then Judah later on is going to become the word Jew. Since both of these narrative traditions shared stories about the patriarchs, the exodus from Egypt and the travels of the wilderness, these two traditions could be brought together into one narrative, thereby valorizing both traditions without questioning the authenticity of the other, and that's what I talked about last time, that the stories just were put together, literally. Okay, now, I'll put rhetorical situation up here but I'm kind of looking at it from the point of view of the redactors here. Remember I said the last redactors are the priestly redactors. Well, they have a problem. The priestly caste in the south by the time of the redaction is descended from Aaron, or claims descent from Aaron. And while the earlier stories authorize the sons of Levi as a legitimate priesthood, through Aaron, Moses, and Miriam are all, and though Aaron, Moses, and Miriam are all from the tribe of Levi, over time, the lineage narrowed to just the descendants of Aaron. Basically what we have is the development of a priestly caste of people who are descended from Aaron who claim that they are the true priests of the temple. That's problematic when you have people who have been priests of the northern temples coming to Jerusalem. So who are going to be the priests? <coughs> Another part of the rhetorical situation is that the promised land promised to Abraham was never completely fulfilled in terms of occupation. There were some other problems. Palestine was never subdued. Areas to the south and north were gained and lost, as I showed you before on the map. The tribes had intermarried with non-Hebrews. One of the things that, that Josiah did as part of his reform is he started dissolving marriages between Hebrews and non-Hebrews. So the Deuteronomists were very concerned about this intermarriage. And you can see it's outlawed in Deuteronomy. Both kingdoms were both mixtures of Hebrew and other peoples. In fact, to the point that the northern kingdom mixed so much with the Canaanites that they were developing a new culture called the Samarians, right? Samaritans, right? The good Samaritan. <laughs> Samarians are different people. All right, so they, basically because of the capital of the northern kingdom. So... There was a blend culture, and this is why later on, by the time of Jesus, the Samaritans believe in the Bible, but they don't believe in the history, the histories. And like, why? Because that's Deuteronomus. That's not the North. That's the Southern version of the story. So they only believe in the first five books. It makes you wonder, and of course, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which shocks the Southern hearers, because he's saying, they're Jews. They're good people, and if, if you know, he, he is basically saying, you know, they're not as off the mark as you think they are. And in fact, the story kind of says, <laughs> we hear it as good Samaritan as he was the one good person. They would have heard it as, what? A Samaritan can be good? They heard it a different way. All right. So, during this time, a new school, the Deuteronomist, revitalized the Hebrew faith with the second book of the law. Now, Metzger goes so far as to say that basically, if we'd have just had the stories of the North and the South, we would not have had the Bible as an international religion. And we'll see basically the redaction process 
pulls it into that kind of a sphere. The Deuteronomist revitalized the law by writing the book of the second law, Deuteronomy. All right, so they discovered in the temple in 2 Kings. I put it in quotations because historians question, was it discovered, was it written, had it been buried? The problem is, and of course, there are historians who do much more careful work than I can get into. What they do is they go and they look to see at what time period do prophets start quoting from these documents? They find that Isaiah isn't, doesn't quote from these documents, which means, ah. <laughs> but you start to see them appear in later prophets, so the theory goes, they appeared at this time. The second book of the law. And so he starts doing the reforms I talked about before. Now, you got, so basically you've got two schools of thought. The priestly group and the Deuteronomists are putting this thing together. So what do they agree on would be important, wouldn't it? Because that's going to make it in for sure. So uh, let me back up just a little bit. Um, one of the major differences between the northern version and the southern version, of course, as you might guess, two major versions. The southern version favored a king, right? Because guess where David is from? Yeah. <laughs> He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. It's a southern story. And no accident, Jerusalem becomes the hub of the country because it's right in the top of the southern kingdom. So, the, and they're the oldest documents. The southern documents are the oldest documents, and they favor a king. The northern, and the other thing they favor is a temple, a unified place of worship, of course, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The, the northern stories don't favor that for obvious reasons. One is they don't want the localized thing because they want their own capitals to be established. And the other, they're not real big on kings. And when you read the, the stories, you can see that tension. Remember Samuel? Uh, we shouldn't have a king. They believe that, that um, and the northern stories tell this story, that Moses is a prophet, that Aaron is a prophet, that they sh the, the rules should be through prophets. It should be our later judges. The name shifts. But basically the same thing. We should not, God is our king, and we should be ruled through wise prophets. In a way, kind of like Socrates' idea of the philosopher king. That this person, it, it, it's still debatable in Islam as well. Like the true rule comes through the imam. And then underneath that are the political figures. So that's the way they wanted to establish society. They were very fearful of the king. And you can watch as you read through kings, you can, and uh, through Samuel especially, you can see this tension between the two different points of view. But the Deuteronomists and the Aaronites both agree on king and central location. They also both support an eternal covenant with the deity. And they both agreed on such a covenant when the nation suffered great political losses. In other words, the way to focus us again is to renew the covenant. And I, uh, that reminds me, like I was sharing with you, that uh, with you, that um, often couples will want to renew their vows 
Yes, I think it's a similar kind of attempt. Like, we have lost our way. We need to renew the covenant. But the big problem is this. The Deuteronomists, they don't have any need for the elite priesthood. Because if you know anything about the priesthood and what the whole thing ends up, they end up becoming the Sadducees later. Yes, by the time of the New Testament. They become very powerful. Uh, because they're the keepers of the temple. Like some people accuse the Catholic Church of becoming at least a lot of the accusations earlier. Uh, the reason the Protestant Church was there, one of the accusations was the church had just gotten too fat, too big, too powerful. The pre- so they're powerful, and they want to protect their interest. If you run the temple, and the temple is the center of your culture, that's a powerful place to be. All right, so the Deuteronomist point of view. The Deuteronomist uh, put together what we now call the history. Yes, so Deuteronomy, Joshua, through Kings. Basically, most of what we know of as the story of the Old Testament, the mythos of the Old Testament, comes from the Deuteronomists. They're pulling together these traditions, and it's based on one plot, the story. The mythos is... The northerners disobeyed more. The southerners disobeyed. Both disobeyed. We're both destroyed. They did it in three phases. The first was, like I said before, Josiah's reform, where the book of Deuteronomy is brought out, and they began to reform the country. So it takes the form of a covenant between Judah and Yahweh to replace Judah and Assyria. And if you read the prophets from this point of view, you can see that often they're saying, uh, in the case of Isaiah, he says, don't make treaties with Assyria. You know, we have a covenant with God. We can't have covenants with Assyria. Interesting enough, Jeremiah, though, living in a different time, says we, um, he says, don't make covenants with Egypt. They're not going to protect us. Were they both right? <laughs> But Isaiah said, um, uh, you can just be careful who you make your covenant with. And so the Osiris reform is to renew that it's a covenant with God. And you can see that the Deuteronomists might not be very fond of making a priestly class a part of that, but making it more, you have a covenant with God. All right, so Judah, the lower, the southern kingdom, is destroyed by Babylon. Remember what I said about Babylon? What did they do? Different attack tactic. They took the elite, including the Aaronids, to Babylon and tried to make them Babylonians. So when we first uh, meet Ezra and Nehemiah, the ones who reestablished the temple and bring it back, they're living where? They're living in Babylon. They go into exile up there. It causes a whole bunch more problems when they come back because there were people who stayed and you had a kind of a prodigal son sort of story there. We have people who went to Babylon and people who stayed, they come back, well who's going to be in control? So all that's going on in the behind the scenes. The Deuteronomists have to exp- feel like they have to explain what happened. So they, they say that Yahweh's punishment of their, fa- uh, of their failure to follow the law and created a history of Israel 
I don't mean created out of nothing, but pull the stories out, emphasize the parts of the story to illustrate their point. Phase three. At the end of the exile, when the Persians agreed the Jews could return to rebuild the temple, um, they began to add different chapters to Deuteronomy and some legal sections in Deuteronomy 19 through 25 and 31 through 34. All right, so what did the priestly group do? This is one of the best moves of all. Remember I told you that the Deuteronomists wrote down the history, and they began the history, not with Exodus, which was a previous book. They put some things into Exodus, but they began with Deuteronomy, the second book. And Deuteronomy, if you read it, you should read it, Deuteronomy, then off into Judges and all the way through. That's the history. That's the Deuteronomist history. <coughs> but they're not in charge of the temple, are they? They're not. Who is? Aaronites, the priests. The D story, Deuteronomy, is actually the first book, the Deuteronomist history, that ends with the book of Kings. But the Aaronites switch it and make it the last of the five books of the Pente what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books. How did they do that? It's established by Ezra, and you can read about this in the history. Ezra establishes the reading that we still that is still done in the Jewish faith. It's still done in Christian churches, right? That there's a reading for each week from the Bible, and throughout the year you read the whole Bible. They established a tradition through Ezra, who is what? He's an Aaronic priest. So they establish it as the last book. What they do in their cycle is they, they only read the cycle of the Pentateuch in Jewish tradition, right? So now it's the fifth book, which means that you immediately go from the end of Deuteronomy to the very first story, and the very first story is an Aaronid version of creation. Ah. By doing that, they establish a Deuteronomic connection, but also establish priestly tradition. <laughs> they make a second move. The book of Numbers is almost entirely a priestly account. And it in, in the uh, Jewish name, title, it means in the wilderness, not Numbers, interestingly enough. The ancestral tribes of Israel called the Biat Avot. According to Numbers 3.5, God separates the tribe of Levi for his own purposes, and they are not a part of the census. So the tribe of Levi doesn't get any land. Y'all know this? Were you paying attention in your Bible class? They did a census. Uh, and it's interesting what they call the census. There, uh, there's a lot of wordplay going on here in Hebrew. God speaks to Moses and tells him to advance the tribe of Levi by placing them in attendance upon Aaron. Ah. So the Levites are the priests, but they are the servants of Aaron. The house of Levi is exempted from military duty and given specific functions in keeping the tent of meeting. 
In other words, they carried stuff around. God has taken the tribe as a special portion, redemption for the firstborn of Israel and Egypt. You also are familiar with the idea of the tithe. Basically, the Levite group is supported by the tithes of the other tribes. Significantly, the promise to Levi Aaron is not a promise to the land. Because remember, by this time, what did they lost? The land. But an attachment to a movable temple. So the promise is not compromised that the land is occupied by others. The other tribes are given authority by a relationship with the land. They got land. The Levites got the temple. They got God. <laughs> The tribes send a reconnaissance group into Canaan, as you know in the story, um, to, to look out, and they send the chiefs of the ancestral tribes, the Nasi. The census was called Naso Atrash, meaning a lifting of the heads. So Nasi is heads. Lifting of the heads. This is very interesting because of what happens later. <laughs> Basically, the Levites are not lifting the heads, right? Because they're not counted in the census. If you're a non-Levite, you lift your head, and you're counted. All right. When the scouts return, saying the people in the land are stronger than we, the Beit Evor are fearful and say, let us appoint a head, aha, Nitnarash, and return to Egypt. They're like, they're ready to go. And Moses and Aaron won't do, will they? We, we have to appoint a head, a new leader. Now, in Hebrew, God's gift of land is related to head. In the, do you see it? Natan is rejected by the Nitnarash, the holding of the heads. So the choice is to be Avodim. It says in the, in the scriptures in the Hebrew, to be, you can be Avodim or Avodim. You can be a servant of the Egyptians or a servant of God. That's the choice today. To respond to their vote, what do Moses and Aaron do? When, I, when you read this, you're like, I don't know why they fell on their faces. But now you do. What did it mean before? What did the census mean? Counting on the heads. So what are they doing? We will not be counted. Yes? We'll still not be counted. We're flat on our faces. <laughs> so Joshua steps in and he says, remember the promise of the land. And basically they push Joshua aside, you young whippersnapper, and say, we're going to kill Moses and Aaron. So what happens, the promise of the land is revoked. Yes? From age 20 and up, not one should enter the land which I promised to settle you. Nobody gets in land. Too bad for you. So they didn't get the priesthood and they didn't get the land. But if they don't get the land, who's left holding anything? A new covenant is cut. And it interestingly parallels the Genesis covenant with Abraham. Do you remember the story where Abraham is at night and he's told to cut up the animals, right? Cut the animals in two parts. 
and they're going to cut a covenant, literally cut a covenant. And you walk between the two animals, and the covenant is sealed. Traditionally, what happens is, if I made a covenant with Dan, we would, interesting, that's one of the temple locations as well. <laughs> but if we made a covenant, we would walk together through the parts, sealing the covenant. It's, a lot of people wonder why I split the two animals. Um, is it partially a sacrifice? What's happening with the two animals? But it's basically saying that, that uh, you can read it in a positive way or a negative way and that we're walking between them to pull it together or that this is what you'll be if you don't keep the covenant. <laughs> so you'd have this vivid reminder <laughs> as you walk through. But that's not what happens in this J story. God comes and goes through. Yes, smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So God comes as both partners and seals the covenant with himself. And it's interesting because, remember last week, what, what Moses' rhetoric was, you can't kill them because you made the promise to yourself. You didn't make the promise to us, you made it to yourself. All right. Now what happens in our story? You've probably heard of Korah's rebellion. One guy named Korah says he wants to be the leader and he's standing up to Moses. And Moses says, okay, everybody appear tomorrow and we're all going to take censers and put incense in them. So the, the, the heads all are going to have censers. Moses says, this is how you know the Lord has sent me to do all the things and that it was not my idea. Moses keeps telling God, don't kill these people. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them and everything belongs to them and they go down alive to the realm of the dead, then you will know these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And you know what happens. As soon as the, he finished saying this, the ground split apart, the earth opened, swallowed them and their households, all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. Well, remember the walking between the animals? <laughs> All right, so Aaron then steps in, of course, into our story, and he acts as an intermediary. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer, right, as the head of the Levites, and put incense in, in it. Remember, he doesn't have incense in his yet because he wasn't told to do it. The other 11 were. Along with the burning coals from the altar. Hurry to the assembly and make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague had started. So Aaron did as Moses said. He ran in the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. And look where he walks. He stands between the living and the dead. He's walking between the cut animals. In this case, the dead here, the living here. And he stops the plague. But he is standing in for the covenant, earlier covenant, with Abraham. Yes? So instead of God coming through, this time it's Aaron. They call this a covenant of salt. I read around on that. Nobody was quite sure why, but they think partially because salt was used. They salted things before they sacrificed them so they would taste better for God. The next day, Moses entered the tent and saw Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi. He tells everybody to get staffs. Yes, you've heard of Aaron's staff. So as a further sign, he tells all the tribes to get a staff. Guess it's the only one that blooms. Ah, 
The tribe of Levi not only had sprouted, but it budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. That's a heck of a staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant of Law. And you can see why there are arguments later as to what exactly is in the Ark of the Covenant. According to some, it's only the tablets. And according to some, Aaron's rod is also in there. You can probably guess whose story had Aaron's rod also in the Ark. All right. Numbers 25.10. The house of Aaron receives a covenant, Brit of priesthood for all time. And I gave you this as a reference too. If you get the slideshow at home, you can see other references to that. All right, let me just quickly finish here. The Yahweh school presents the nation of Israel as Yahweh's own people, which he had brought into being, protected, and settled in the land of Canaan in fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Yahweh also emphasizes Israel's destiny to be a great nation who will rule over her neighbors and have a king from the tribe of Judah. The theology of the Iloist focuses on four elements, prophetic leadership, so they're against the kingship, fear of God, covenant, and the theology of history. Now, our last two redactors. The D redactors, loyalty of Yahweh was measured from the terms of obedience to Deuteronomic law. Since Israel and Judah had failed to follow that law, their histories had ended in complete destruction according to the divine judgment. What did P contribute? Priestly source portrays Yahweh as a God who is interested in ritual. The priestly source portrays God, Yahweh, as the creator of the whole world. Remember the Genesis story, God creates the entire world and all human beings, which he says is good, and he offers a blessing. So the emphasis in their point of view is that all of humanity is created in God's image, implying dominion over the whole earth, They also, Yahweh's presence and Yahweh's blessings are described in the priestly source, not to be mediated by a king, but by the high priest. Yahweh wanted to make himself present to the people, so we get from the priestly source progressive layers of Sabbath. Seven days, seven months, seven years, seven times seven years. So they brought a lot of those seven versions of this story. In terms of social structure, the priestly store portrays Yahweh as granting his presence to particular people who know his name. The ritual system and the law represent cosmic order in a priestly garment. All right, so in short, without the inspired rhetorical work of the priestly sources, I don't think the Bible would exist as we know it. A lot of those things are very familiar parts of, of what we know about the Bible. And partly because the reinterpretation of God is universal and not tied to a particular land, the Jewish faith could survive after the destruction of Jerusalem. And because of their reduction, the groundwork for Christianity was laid, and we see that clearly in Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Thank you.
Quick questions. Slow questions. I know, that was a lot to assimilate. Yes? If I understand your question, you mean what happened to the tribes, or is that what you're asking? So the twelve tribes are the twelve sons of Israel, Jacob, right? And then they all have their own families because everybody became a tribe, right? But if you were paying attention to the original story, they didn't get along when they were, you know, they threw one of them, they sold him as a slave. So they didn't get along from the very beginning. And I think they all had their own political agendas and interests and different attitudes toward things. I think some of the, in some of the tribes, intermarriage was okay, and some of the tribes wasn't. You have to remember, the, a lot of the things that we consider the Bible, they didn't have that. They just had a belief that they were the children of Abraham and the children of Isaac and of Jacob and that their one God was Yahweh or El. And so they didn't really have a lot of the things. If you think about anybody before that point, before even Moses, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the book of the law. So I'm not sure what made one a Jew at that time other than you, you just really believed in that one God. Am I making any sense? In circumcision, apparently. But I, they're not even quite sure how far that went back. <laughs> well, <laughs> free will. <laughs> okay, come in uh, when I switch to the New Testament after another week. We'll see if that's still what you say. <laughs> I, to me, it's kind of beautiful in the sense that you have Hebrew Jewish people over time trying to make sense of their relationship with God. And so some things get emphasized and some things get left out. So it's kind of beautiful that they constructed something and they could have constructed it more and more narrowly. They could have gone the Deuteronomist version. And if we had only the Deuteronomist version of the Bible, we would have pretty much just a Jewish Bible. But the priestly element added to it things that set it up for the development of Christianity. So because that's what I was trying to say today. The, the, there were really two ways it could have gone. It could have gotten to be a book more and more specific to Jews only, like almost like a Jews only club, or it could have become more expansive and more a book for all humanity. And the priestly additions actually made it more for humanity. Think how beautiful that first story is. God saw and it was good, right? And that he made male and female together in the image of himself or him herself, neither male nor female. 
That's a powerful story, and it's quite a different tradition. So they brought some distance. Well, a lot of people complain that there's a distance to God. He's not walking around in the garden like in the, in the Jay stories. In their story, God is elevated. He's the God of the smoke and the fire on the mountain, right? You don't approach God. You don't look at God. So it's more distant, but it's also more universal. He's the God of all humanity. If they hadn't started making those connections, I don't think we would have had the stage set so well for, for Christ to come. So I don't know, I see a mixture of human and divine, and, and yeah, it's a mess, because I guess, because it's like you say, it's human. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, isn't chaos the constantly having to do that our chaotic lives? In science agrees, right? The, what is it, the, that law of thermodynamics, everything tends to go to entropy, yeah, fall apart, things fall apart, and that's what we see historically. Everything keeps falling apart. The history of the Christian church, things fall apart. It, it's what humans do. We do it really well. We got that down. <coughs> but all of us, you know, we know that. My students just do it in miniature every semester. They come in there, yeah, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do every assignment. This is going to be a different semester. What's happening by the end of the semester? <laughs> Entropy. <laughs> It happens for me as well. I'm going in there, man, this time. And then at some point I'm like, more to grade, what is going on? So yeah, I think, I think it's true. And we see that Moses keeps standing up going, it's almost like he's saying, like, what'd you expect? <laughs> you made us this way. We're idiots, so. It's kind of like God just keeps saying, I'm going to start over, I'm going to start over, I'm going to start over. And like, not a good plan for us. Yeah. No ark. That, that, that's what he did. He's, he, built a, he built the temples with the, the golden calf and God's presence. So they had their own version of the ark. It was in Jerusalem. It hadn't been lost yet, even though, even though the Philistines captured it for a while, which is quite a weird story. But yeah, it hadn't disappeared from time. It doesn't disappear from time until the complete destruction of Jerusalem later on. Well, it's destroyed three times, but the final destruction of Jerusalem was in uh, um, after Jesus. Yeah. yeah, in the 70s. Sure. Thank you.